While you're turning there, I will give you a brief update of what's going on. And so everybody, so I don't have to tell everybody. I want you to understand that same story fifty hundred times. <laughs> so Colton had his surgery. You all know that. He. Um, it's very interesting. We got to meet with the doctor Tuesday, and. Uh, when he came the first time to talk to us, he was sweating, distraught. I was quite nervous because he did not look good when the surgeon came to see us six hours after we had left him. And uh, he, he shook his head and said, this is horrible. This, I've never seen it this bad. He does 80% of these things in northern Minnesota. He's the guy. Praise God for that. And uh, <clears throat> he gave us a rough estimate that he took out 30 nodes and his um, thyroid. He also said in one of the, either the nodes or the thyroid, when he pulled it out, they literally opened him up and you can look at his new necklace that he'll be wearing the rest of his life and spread his muscles away from his throat so that they could start in this... Uh, start going muscle by muscle and finding these nodes and taking them out. <clears throat> so he said, uh, I pulled one of the nodes out and a parathyroid came out. And a parathyroid, if you don't have that working, you're in trouble. It's worse than cancer. Um, so he said they, he pulled it out. So he took the parathyroid off of the tumor that, or the sick node that they had, chopped it up into little pieces and stuck it back in the muscles of his neck to grow. Do we serve an awesome God or what? <laughs> uh, I can't do anything with this, but God can. I mean, he didn't say that, but that's exactly what he was saying. And so that was very interesting. We're learning a lot, but he literally pulled out 42 nodes out of his neck and his thyroid. And this is a normal thing. Um, if you're going to have cancer, that's the cancer to have. But um, because of the invasive surgery that he had and the vast problems he was undertaking in those six hours, it'll be a month or more till he eventually get what is called radiated iodine pill. How many have ever heard of that? And I'll explain what that does. <clears throat> the, the nodes in your body are hungry for iodine. They eat it. And <clears throat> he has cancer throughout. They believe he has cancer still in it. They know that he has cancer in his neck still. And they know, and they think he has it in his chest. And so what they're going to be doing is they lace the iodine with radiation. And so what is happening is possibly within three weeks of him having the radiation, they'll stop his thyroid medication, which will make him, if you all know that, and what that's doing is starving his body of iodine 
so that when he is then given the pill of iodine radiation, they will immediately suck it all in because they're eating it. What they don't know, it's decon. <laughs> I want to understand that. It's, it's radiation that's going to kill those. I don't know if they kill the nodes, but they're killing the cancer for sure. So that is where we're at. We, um, I never understood. One thing that we're going to be talking about this morning from the text is so many times we think we know somebody else's problems because we put our context into their context. And we're prideful in that way, really. And nobody knows anybody's context. So when I have had sick people that I've tried to encourage, I try to sympathize, but I do the best I can. My context with them, their context, is not the same at all. One of the things I did not understand was how draining this is for a body. Um, not just for Colton, although especially for Colton, but also mom and dad. I'm glad I'm not as emotional as Tim Gaiman. <laughs> but the reality is, um, I'm the type of guy that we need to get to work uh, as soon as we can. So we tried on Thursday. That didn't go over so well. <clears throat> Literally, your mind's going in all different places, in all different areas, and not on the work that's accomplished, needs to be accomplished. So we put in all of three or four hours and said, okay, that's enough. We're going home. <laughs> and so Friday was better. But I didn't understand the impact that that type of a thing will do on a person, even though there's no physical aspect at all with Preet and I, none. But the emotional strain on your body and your mind was, it, it, I've never experienced that. Um, to, the, to the extent that we experienced it this two weeks ago. Regardless, I've been out of the pulpit for two weeks, and that makes me anxious and very frustrated and everything else, if that makes sense, because that's what I have been designed to do. Prayer requests, I would ask this, that Preet and I can literally get our rest, <clears throat> um, and Colton. But since COVID, I can count three days that we've been away and did something not work-related in any sort. That doesn't work. <laughs> and we are drained. <clears throat> and this on top of it just makes it worse. So, we would pray that... Pray that we can get that rest that God wants us to get and need. Number two, we meet with <coughs> we meet with the um, the thy 
Thank you. Say it again. Okay. We weep with her, whatever that is, anthrocanalysis or some kind of, just throw a whole bunch of letters out there and you're close. We're meeting with her. She is going to be on Thursday. She is in Duluth. She is going to be in charge of when or if he needs the radioactive iodine. And she's also in charge of regulating the thyroid medicine to where it needs to be. So she's the doctor he's going to be seeing quite often. And so please pray for that because we, the faster we can get him out of cancer, in my mind, the better, right? But he has a month to heal from that invasive surgery. Um, so those are two of the requests. The other is we have... We are growing a really great relationship with this doctor. He just is, and the doctor is the surgeon. They're one and the same. He's five years from retirement. And so um, I wrote that in a letter, so you wouldn't have got it. <laughs> um, so please pray for him that we can be um, an encouragement, humble and thankful for God gifting him in the way he has and that he is able to serve our family, but most importantly, that we can share with him the unadulterated gospel, that he too can come to know the Lord. If he doesn't already, I have not frankly asked him point blank that. He's kind of a no-nonsense guy. I'll tell you this, when we got into the doctor the first time, two days after Christmas, we were sent immediately to the Duluth he looked at it. He, he looked at his neck, felt his neck. It took him not even five minutes. He said, I'm not going to be around the bush. Your son has, I don't know exactly what your son has, but whatever it is, it's horrible. It's not good. And it's probably cancer. Well, it is cancer. And we got to deal with this immediately. And within a week, he had a biopsy. And within days, he had the surgery. That also is an answer to prayer. Because uh, get in line and wait. Just go to the emergency room sometime. See how that works. So we thank the Lord for what he's done. We praise him for what he's going to be doing. And uh, Colton's not the only one in our church that needs prayer. There are multiple. Everybody needs prayer. Amen. So Continue to pray for one another, but I especially ask you to pray for those three things specifically. Um, for our family. All right, Romans chapter 11 says, well, hold it, you said Jonah. See, I told you I was tired. No, that's not true. Romans chapter 11 says this, Behold then the kindness and severity of God. The kindness and severity of God. Jonah is all about the kindness and severity of God. You go through the whole book, and you're going to find judgment, mercy, mercy, judgment, mercy, judgment, grace, mercy, judgment, judgment, mercy. All through the whole book. You're going to see it over and over, and it's talking about the kindness and severity of God. And we see that in Romans chapter 11, verse 12. Reality is, Christians in all ages have used the term, please, Lord, Come 
quickly. How many of don't raise your hand on this, but I would guess every one of us have said this. The reality is, why are we saying it? Why are we saying it? This term can be a good thing. We all look forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. Amen. Everybody looks forward to that. But many times the Christian is grappling with how God can let the wicked seemingly prevail while the Christian life is a struggle. How many get that? It's like, why? I don't get it. They're wicked people. Why do they get grace and mercy? At least that's what our mindset is. And that's what we, we, Lord, come and zap them. Or you're standing talking to somebody and they're just, okay, you know, sir, I'm just going to walk away because lightning's going to strike you. Right? This attitude permeates Christianity. It truly does. It seems as though the wicked prevail while the Christian life is a struggle. So, Lord, come quickly, and Lord, judge the evil. How many would agree that is true? Reality is, the Old Testament, this same attitude prevailed. David, in Psalm 109, here's what he says. Listen very closely. Let his children be fatherless. Ooh. And his wife a widow. Let his children wander about and beg. And let them seek sustenance far from their ruined homes. Did David have a problem with wickedness? Wicked people. He hated it. Moses. David also says this. And we'll get to Moses in just a second. Oh, that thou wouldst slay the wicked, O God. Okay, that kind of sells you where he's at. Slay the wicked. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against thee wickedly, and thy enemies take thy name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate thee, O Lord? I mean, Jonah definitely did not want to see Nineveh come to a saving knowledge of God. David went beyond that and said it. I hate them. I hate them because they hate thee, O Lord. And do I not loathe those who rise up against thee? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Moses. Moses says, rise up, O Lord. Let thine enemies be scattered and let those that hate thee flee before thee. So we know that David had some problems, but we don't really think of him as a hater. But yet, does the text say he was? Moses, he was the kind of a a, 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 a do before we think, right? He was kind of half-cocked sometimes. So we might expect that from him, but what about the weeping prophet? What about Jeremiah? Do you think of anything negative that Jeremiah said about people? Jeremiah seems to me, as I look at it, as a calm guy. Here's what he says. Do give heed to me, O Lord, and listen to what my opponents are saying. 
Should good be repaid with evil? For they have dug a pit for me. Remember how I stood before thee to speak good on their behalf so as to turn away thy wrath from them. Therefore, give their children over to famine. Oh, that's kind. Give their children over to famine and deliver them up to the power of the sword and let their wives become childless and widowed. Let their men also be smitten to death, their young men struck down by the sword in battle. May an outcry be heard from their houses when thou suddenly bringest raiders upon them. For they have dug a pit to capture me and hidden snares for my feet. Yet thou, O Lord, knowest all their deadly designs against me. Do not forgive their iniquity. Jeremiah says it. Do not forgive their iniquity. Or blot out their sin from thy sight. But may they be overthrown before thee. Deal with them in the time of thy anger. I would say it's pretty clear that godly men, heroes of the faith, were just like Jonah. In that, I don't want to see my enemies succeed. I don't want to see them be given forgiveness. Why is it, though, that Jonah is treated differently today? How many understand that? I mean, we hear Jonah, we think, Ugh! What about David? What about Moses? What about Jeremiah? I mean, he literally said a whole lot worse things than Jonah ever said from what we have in the text. Even in the future, Christians will cry, and when he broke the fifth seal, the Bible says in Revelation, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, what did they say? How long, O Lord, holy and true, wilt thou refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Deal with them. Kill them all. There is a plethora of other prophets and writers that express the same attitude. Jonah is one of them. He correctly viewed Assyria to be a vile, wicked enemy of God in Israel, and they were. He in no way wanted to see them be given mercy by God, but instead he desired their complete judgment by God. Just like you and I do sometimes. Can you just deal with these guys? I can guarantee you, when you're watching news, there is one party that you wish God would totally judge in our political system. I, I can guarantee you that's the attitude. To know the heart of Jonah or anyone else, to know their motivation and context of all children of God that desired the enemies killed would be probably endless. We will never know, probably. And when we do, could know, we don't care to know. In heaven, amen. To be sure, to be, today we look at David, Moses, and Jeremiah as giants of the faith, 
yet Jonah is relegated to the basement of yuckiness. He's looked down upon. He's called names by modern-day Christians. So why did God seem to treat Jonah differently than these that we have brought up? Well, maybe he did not treat them differently. We just don't know the details of their story well enough. Although David did lose his son. And Moses was not allowed to get into the promised land. So there were judgments, there were disciplines of these men. Jonah cried like many before and after him that the wicked need their just reward. I submit to you this morning that I believe the one issue that comes to the forefront of Jonah is that of humility. Jonah tried manipulating God to do what Jonah thought was best. And when, and when Jonah wanted it done. Jonah wanted Nineveh judged. And he wanted it judged now. Here's the deal. God wanted Jonah or wanted Nineveh judged, but he's going to judge them a hundred years later. Jonah missed the joy of serving God because he was focused on himself. What God was doing in his mind was unfair. And to be honest, that's what da da David and, and Moses and Jeremiah were both saying the same thing. These guys are against you. Deal with them, God. And many of the minor prophets are the same exact thing. Jonah missed the joy of serving God because he knew what should be done and God didn't. How many follow that? These guys need to be judged, God. Hello, are you not awake? Are you not listening? Jonah missed the joy of serving God because he was chosen and they are not. Let me ask you, do we say the same thing? I'm a Christian. I, believe, I, I deserve a little bit better treatment than other people do. Is that true? Do we live like that? That was Jonah's mindset. Jonah missed the joy of serving God because he was righteous in his own mind. Jonah needed a lesson that God's ways are not always our ways. And God alone is God, and we are not. There is a God, and I am not Him. God alone is righteous. God alone is merciful. God alone is gracious. God alone is just and simply, absolutely sovereign. When we lose rest, peace, and joy, it is truly, it truly is not because we are in this situation or, or in this circumstance. It is because we have lost sight of who God truly is. The Bible says in Jonah chapter 4, verses 9 through 11, and we're not going to get through all three of those verses because there's lots of words in it. How many got that? <laughs> then God said to Jonah, do you have a good reason to be angry about the plant? 
I sympathize with Jonah right now in my house. <laughs> my poor wife. <laughs> she is putting plant after plant after, replanting because everything just blew up. You ever had plants that just blow up at your house? Ask Prita what she does because it's phenomenal. We have hanging gardens in my rooms. <laughs> but I love it. Here, Jonah says, what are you being angry at a plant for? Let me ask you, was Jonah angry at a plant? Yeah, remember three weeks ago, as <laughs> long than that, over a month ago, God brought a worm to destroy his comfort, his mercy, right? And at the very point he needed that mercy, it died. It was gone because the worm ate it all. Can you imagine what kind of worm that was? Regardless, do you have a good reason to be angry at the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. Then the Lord said, you have compassion on a plant which did not work and which did not cause to, you did not cause it to grow, which I came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not believe, do not know the difference between their right and their left, and as many, and as well as many animals. This text is used over and over again. There's lots of people that look at this text and it says, well, it's talking about kids and it's talking about um, animals are important to God and because I love my dog. And uh, okay, we can go all down that road, but that's not what it's talking about. And we'll get to that, Lord willing, next week. What we are going to deal with, though, do you have good reason to be angry? God's final challenge focused on Jonah's anger. God does not give up on Jonah. Could God have given up on Jonah the day he said, I'm off to Spain? Could God have just given up on Jonah when he was off to the depths of the sea. Could God have given up on Jonah when Jonah made a deal with him, said, hey God, I tell you what, I tell you what, you can kill me, but you need to judge them. There was a deal there he was trying to make. Change your mind, God, right away. He could have given up on Jonah over and over again, but here's the deal. God never changes. His love is forever. And you are in the palm of His hand for eternity. I tell you what, that should, I should hear more than just one, yeah, that's right. Because I tell you what, your father, your mother, your son, your grandfather, any title you want to name anybody, I don't care what they are, they will let you down. God never will. He never will. I will never leave you. I will. What? What? Never leave you or forsake you. God says. I am with you always. Do we believe that? I will tell you what. I didn't believe that. I've had, I've had times in my life within the last two weeks 
Why are you doing this? Deal with other people that sin more. How many understand that? I did everything right, and I'm way ahead of my notes. The reality is, he will never leave you. He never gave up on Jonah, and praise God for that. And by the way, because he never gave up on Jonah in Jonah, I am confident that he never gave up on Jonah. I cannot prove that, but I can tell you, twice in the New Testament, Jonah is used in a good sense. One referring to Christ, that's kind of important, and the other one referring to Peter. We'll look at that one today. God engages Jonah again and again and again and again, and it's like Jonah, he's, he's, he's the perfect church goer. He's the perfect Christian. He does every, he crosses his T's, he, 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 everything's perfect outwardly. And everything has become so perfect that he believes he is in this second class of humanity, or first class of humanity, and all other humans are like beneath him. He truly believes that because of what he's doing here. God engages Jonah again and again, repeating the question that he had asked previously. In chapter 4, verse 4, he says, do you have good reason to be angry? That time, he was talking about, you're angry that I am not going to judge Nineveh at this time, and I'm going to give them mercy, and you're angry about it. Now, he's talking about anger with the plant. The reality is, what, do the, what does the plant and Nineveh have in common? Jonah, you're just the mouthpiece. I am the God. That's the difference when you get right down to it. This time it's very different. God focuses a question on Jonah's anger over the plant's demise rather, on his, rather than his anger on Nineveh's deliverance. God knows all, and clearly the deliverance of Nineveh has, according to God, is no longer the source of, God, of Jonah's anger. That, that's done past. He's beyond that. Now he's mad at God, to be honest with you. So, and, and then God uses this thing. You're angry at this plant. Did you grow it? What did you have to do with the plant at all? So who are you really angry at? Frankly, God and Jonah are giving us a glimpse of why Jonah has been so angry. He's focused on himself. How could you do this to me? And here's what he did, literally, and, and I'm going off track here, but here's the deal. It's so important we get this. He talks about plant, he talks about Nineveh, not, or Nineveh getting mercy, right? Then he talks, he's angry about that. Then he's angry at the plant. Here's the deal. Jonah's angry that somebody else was given mercy, and now he's really angry because the mercy was taken away from him with the plant. How many see that? That's exactly what's going on. In essence, God's teaching a lesson. Listen, buddy, I judged you and then gave you mercy. And you reveled in that mercy. But you hate it when other people get mercy. How many see what's going on here? 
For Jonah, it's all about Jonah. He's focusing on himself. He's focusing himself. It's, it's all about me. It's about my comfort. It's about my, it's me, 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 me. Praise God, we as believers don't have the problem with self-focus. Tongue-in-cheek, that was said. God asks, is your anger over the plant that intense? It's really cool here. By asking the question this way, God distanced the discussion from the issue of Nineveh's deliverance. Jonah's response to God question is emphatically, my anger is so intense I could die. Jonah is reacting to all that he feels have been affronts to himself and to Israel. If I could just for a second explain why he, what he said here and why he said it, if I could have the liberty of expressing how Jonah has felt throughout this book, God, you gave me a promise, a prophecy to give to Israel, that it would expand its lands, its power, its wealth. I prophesied what you told me, and it all came true. God, now that we have expanded to our greatest times Israel has ever had since Solomon, now if you could just help us get rid of the Assyrian problem and their probings into our land and the threats that they are posing to our Israel kingdom, you have prophesied. Now, by the way, how many understand that Israel's enemy was Assyria? Here's a little tidbit I learned this week, and I, I, never heard, I had never heard this before. You know at this moment in history, Israel is in the north, Judah is in the south. There's a broken thing. God, or Israel has expanded beyond Solomon. I mean, it's huge. It, it's the best wealth they've ever had. It's the best everything they've ever had since Solomon. Some people even say more than Solomon. Regardless, there's one country that stands in the way of their expansion. Who is that? Actually, there's two. Assyria and a little country just south of them called Judah. Do you know what Judah does? Judah sends treasure, the text says, to Assyria to deal with Israel. Holy smokes. Did you get that? Judah and Israel are the children of God. And one of them is paying a gentilic, wicked, the most wicked, the most wicked country in the world, paying them to get rid of this Israel. That's a side note. We're going to be talking about that more because two things are coming up. This is a Lord willing. Number one, we're going to be preaching the brother passage to Jonah next. Anybody know what that brother passage is? Nahum. Nahum does exactly what Jonah wanted God to do. 
that will set up, literally, historically, it will set right up the life of Christ. Because all of that history comes right into what Jesus was born into. And from there, Lord willing, we will preach John. Regardless. God, now that you have expanded Israel's wealth and lands and power to as much as ever been seen by Solomon, maybe even more, please take care of Assyria. Deal with them so that we can actually enjoy and embrace the promises you've given to us as Israel, the eternal kingdom. Then he, another one is, God told me, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But I know you, Lord. You are a God of mercy, and you've granted Nineveh mercy. I know you will. Our long prophesied kingdom will be put off for a time. I'm not cool with that. I want the kingdom now. We are close. Let me ask you, does that sound just like Christians today? Kill all the bad guys. Come now. I want the kingdom. I want it now. It's the exact same thing. God, you have give you had you can get someone else. Leave me out of the possibility that you are going to use me to see grace and mercy given to Israel's most dangerous enemies. God, I'm going to just hide out during this providential storm on the Mediterranean Sea, and hopefully it'll just pass, and you, God, can ask another prophet to do your bidding. Okay, God, I give up. I give up. I choose to die rather than obey your command. Throw me overboard. As soon as he's thrown overboard, God, have mercy on me. Help me. I sense Sheol. I can sense it. It's right there before me. Help me. God grants him mercy. God, have mercy on me. Help me. Okay, God. Okay, God. I will preach. Yet 40 days in Nineveh will be overthrown. I can preach that. It fits what I want to see happen to Nineveh. God, I'm mad. These Ninevites deserve judgment, and you gave them mercy. I'm just going to sit up on here on the hill and watch the fireworks of judgment because you are going to realize that these guys deserve judgment, not mercy. I'm the one that deserves mercy. God, see, I knew you would give me you. I knew you would give me mercy and provide shade for my comfort. I've had it with you, God. It seems to me you give mercy to those who don't deserve it, and you judge the ones that are your people. I don't get this. I deserve mercy. They don't. Just when I needed the most mercy, you destroyed it. I am, I'm out. I am done. Look what I have done for you. Let me ask you, that exact thing is what many Christians think. And I will tell you this, in those dark circumstances that God puts in your life to draw you closer to Him, we then turn and say, this is not what I signed up for. This is not what is best for me. I know. No, you're playing God. Stop it. The word 
that is used for Jonah's anger and God's anger is quite interesting. Remember, <clears throat> the word both God and Jonah have used for the prophet's anger is this word called heat. Burning with passionate heat. How many understand that? My uncle, um, I, uh, an uncle, uh, uh, one of my uncles explained it this way. I remember Grandpa. He's like putting a cap on the key on the tea kettle on the stove and then pulling it off and seeing what happens. That heat, that what it does explodes, right? It's steam just blows up in the air. It's just hot and it's and we do the same thing with our words. We we when we get angry we get hot under the collar. We say that term, right? Or like a teapot that blows a gasket. The word, this word, Jonah is not about getting, he's hot about not getting what he thinks is best. And when God will use, judge, will finally judge the wicked. Come, Lord Jesus, now and save me from the wickedness around me and judge those who are creating the wickedness. Jonah has been hot all book long at God, except when God shows him mercy. But it seems that Jonah expects God's mercy. The way the text reads, Jonah's hot, angry, Jonah's angry hot is because of God's heat. How many understand this? Look at the text. God, you showed me mercy for a short time and then took it away. And him taking it away, you're, you're going to kill me in this what? Heat. Jonah's anger is put right back on him, on his head, literally. It's quite interesting. By the way, how many see Jonah's wording is just phenomenal? The specific words he uses, the word plays, they're just awesome. In essence, Jonah has been spitting mad that God is giving mercy to those who do not deserve mercy, but deserve judgment. Now Jonah is mad that the mercy he thinks he deserves becomes judgment that he thinks he does not deserve. Did you follow that? I'll say it again because that's exactly what's going on. Jonah has been spitting mad that God is giving mercy to those who do not deserve mercy. Number one, who deserves mercy? No one. But they deserve judgment. Who deserves judgment? Now Jonah is mad that the mercy he thinks he deserves becomes judgment that he doesn't deserve. There's a saying, what's good for the goose is good for the gander or something like that. That's exactly the issue here. There's a play on words here to express this. Jonah is hot because God brought the heat. Jonah's answer sets the stage for God's closing speech by providing the basis for a comparison that God will use to make his point. First of all, God's initial question, do you have good reason to be angry, implied that Jonah's anger over Nineveh's deliverance is inappropriate and excessive. 
That's not for you to say, Jonah. I will give mercy to whom I give mercy. And isn't that what he does? I myself will make all goodness, all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will gracious to those whom I will be gracious to and will show compassion on whom I show compassion. So where is Jonah's name in that? And frankly, where is our name in that? God will show compassion on whom he chooses. And it's not our job to question that in a way that puts, elevates us in pride as if we are God, as Jonah is doing. We are not God. We do the same thing applicably in our minds. Why is God giving my son cancer? I have sacrificed so much for Lord, for you, Lord. My family is a good family. We don't deserve it. It's not fair. The ungodly family does not have a son with cancer. He's not a smoker. He's not a drunk. He's not a drug user. Why? 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 Every one of us have gone down that road. The list is literally endless if we let our flesh control our minds and hearts. Or maybe it's not what God has given, but what He hasn't given us that we want. Folks, God's plan is God's plan, and it will not be thwarted nor changed. This exactly is where Jonah's mind is. Some will say, well, pastor, you do not understand my situation. You do not understand my context. You don't get it. You cannot fathom what I'm going through. I will reply this, you're right. I cannot understand completely within your context and situation. But I'm going to do everything I can to love you and care for you and encourage you. But I will tell you this. God does. God does. And that's what matters. I will try my best to serve you, but I will fail. God will not fail. Jonah, God's mercy is not up to you. Jonah, you do not get to choose what God gives, who God gives mercy to. Jonah, it's not up to you when God gives mercy or judgment. It's up to Him and God alone. The reality is, is instead of Jonah, insert your own name. Tim, God's mercy is not up to you. Tim, you do not get to choose who God gives mercy to, and it's not up to you when God gives mercy or judgment. It's up to God and God alone. God's question do you have any good reason to be angry about the plant? Jonah's anger over the sudden and unexplained removal of the plant is appropriate because God sees through his mercy to his people. So what is God doing? 
it's almost as if God is a little bit out of character here, in a sense. The whole purpose is to teach Jonah what is wrong with him. Jonah's anger over the sudden and unexplained removal of the plant is appropriate and understandable. God had extended mercy to Jonah via the plant and then revoked it, exposing Jonah to potentially lethal elements. Jonah experienced unmitigated justice, and he didn't like it. This is a change in God's actions for a purpose. He's doing this to teach Jonah something. One text says, please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? That's Jonah 4.2. Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Is Jonah facing calamity? Because he's take took away the plant. Absolutely. This doesn't go with your 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 character, God. What what's going on here? You haven't learned the lesson. How many how many how many of you have that child? That one child. Whoo! Some of them you look at and they just faint. You know? And others, you're like, I can beat my head on the cement. Ten times, and I can't get through to you. This is Jonah. He's that kid. He's that one. Jonah is now in a position to sympathize with God's hesitancy to execute judgment. So, so, so you gave me mercy and then took it away. And by the way, I think this is a foreshadowing of what's going to take place in Nahum. Because God is going to, he did, he gives Nineveh mercy. But within a hundred years, he takes it away and judges them. Just to think about how great our God is that he literally uses real life experiences in all of these life to prophesy of future events that he has planned. It's, man, that just gets me, you know the, the, the shiver up your leg comment? That's real in this. God is teaching. Literally, Jonah was given mercy in the form of a plant, but it was quickly taken away and replaced with the judgment of unbearable heat. Jonah is literally being given a taste of what he wanted Nineveh to experience. Listen, Jonah, you're not all that great. You're, you're not all that. Right? I will give judgment who I give judgment. I'll give mercy to I have mercy. This is my plan, not yours. See, Jonah, in the last question, was trying to manipulate God to rescind Nineveh's mercy 
and bring judgment upon them. So what did God do? He gave Jonah the exact scenario he asked for. To Jonah, not to Nineveh. Some of, I know I've heard this, Tim, you take so long to text. How can you not? How can you not? Jonah was given mercy in the form of a plant. And now he's giving a taste of what he was wishing on a country. God is teaching. Listen, folks, there's not a time in your life where God is not teaching you. And sometimes we're the kid that just doesn't get it right away. God wants us to ask Him what's going on so He can teach us. There's nothing wrong with asking. But what, when Jonah asks this, what do we have? We have, a, we have a, 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 a communication between God and Jonah, back and forth. He's teaching him. How many love to be taught by God? You can be every day if you're saturated in His Word. He's willing and wanting to teach. Though Jonah answers God's question with a self-vindicating spirit, his response is truer than he realizes. He is, in fact, right to be angry about receiving mercy only for it to be satched away. The issue is not that Jonah or Nineveh has a right to God's mercy. Rather, the issue is that God's character is such that upon granting mercy, he follows through and remains true to his office. God desires some to repent. Is that, is that correct? Absolutely not. God desires every man everywhere to repent. The Assyrians included. And all other nations as well. How? Through Israel's mediation. Israel is key. Israel has just sent a prophet to the Gentiles to give them God. Amen? And he's fighting it every step he can. And by the way, there's another man who did that. He's an apostle. And we'll talk about him real soon. But listen to Isaiah chapter 19. In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt. What? What? There will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord near its border. It will become a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they will cry to the Lord because of oppressors and he will send them a savior and champion and he will deliver them. Thus the Lord will make him known to Egypt. And the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. They will even worship with sacrifice and offering and will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. Is God saying here, Egypt and Assyria, by the way, he's going to get to them here soon, are going to know the Lord and worship him? That's what it's saying. The Lord will strike Egypt, striking but healing so they, re so they will return to the Lord and He will respond to them and will heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. This is so important. 
the known world, the greatest conquerors that the world knew. Egypt was one, right? They were a has-been. The Assyrians are now, at this time in history that we're talking about, and they can't go through that road. Why? Israel's there. How is the knowledge of God going to get to the Egyptians and to the Assyrians unless the Assyrians can freely go to Egypt and Egypt can freely go to Assyria? Not to mention the money thing, the economic part of it. How many get that? God placed Israel right in the breadbasket to do what? This is who my God is. I will tell you what, America is the breadbasket today in the world. We have freedom to go anywhere in the world we want, just about. We can give the gospel to all the world, and we can't even give it to our neighbors sitting across a small alley from us. True? I'm going to keep reading because it gets pretty cool. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrians will come into Egypt, and the Egyptians into Syria, Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people. And Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. By the way, if you're a dispensationalist and you read that, you're like, ooh, yeah. <laughs> it gives you distinction purposes for different peoples. In fact, Jonah's mission has long been a foreshadowing of this eventual sending out people everywhere. Now, did Jesus send out the apostles to all the world or to Israel? In his, while he was on this earth, who did he send them to? It wasn't all the earth. When he left, he took a man and he said, this is what I want, and I'm going to read to you this, read to you this passage. This is the 800-year-removed 800 Jonah. Jonah's mission has been a foreshadowing of salvation for the world. This is also part of the reason that Peter was called Simon what? Simon Bar-Jonah. Now, we can argue about whether his dad's name truly was Jonas or whether you're going to do the same thing Jonah did. And to be honest with you, I am convinced that Simon Bar-Jonah or Peter, son of Jonah, is about his ministry that God had given him. And it's very interesting. There are some wacko nuts out there that believe that Peter was the apostle to the Jews, and Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. Now, it is true that Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, but who started all that? Peter did. 
Peter did. And Peter had the same resistance that Jonah did. I don't want to go there. No, no, absolutely not. And look, look what the text says, because it says it all. Now, there was a man at Syria named Cornelius, a centurion that was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all of his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius. Now that would be weird. And fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, you think, he said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa. <laughs> Does that ring a bell? Send some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. Now, why was Peter in a tanner's house in Joppa? Well, Joppa was the very sending point of Jonah away from God. And now Joppa is the very point where God is going to send Peter to Gentiles. It's quite interesting. God has a sense of humor. He truly does. <clears throat> Uh, when the angel was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of who were his personal attendants. And after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up to the housetop the sixth hour to pray. But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making, by the way, he became hungry. Who made him hungry? God did, because he's going to talk to him. So being hungry isn't a sin. could be God telling you, go get eat, right? Okay, I just had to put that in because you need to see that. I have listened to that too much lately. <clears throat> but while they were making preparation, he fell into a trance. And the sky opened up. And an object like a great sheet came down, lowered up by four corners to the ground. And there were in all kinds of four-footed beasts and animals, crawling creatures of the earth and birds of, of the air. A voice came to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. I always like to tease Kayla when I come to this text, because Kayla hates spiders. But according to this, there were crawling things on the sheet, so there were probably spiders on the sheet. And God's telling Peter to eat it. <laughs> Kayla? <laughs> Kayla and I have a good time discussing that, and I appreciate her. But the reality is, God put all these unclean things on there and told Peter to eat it. The voice says, Peter, get up, kill and eat. But Peter said, are you kidding me? By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten any, uh, anything unholy and unclean. No way. I am a just Jew. I do not eat unclean things. Jonah, I am a just Jew. I go to church. Well, he wouldn't go to church, but he goes to the assembly, and he does all the rituals. He, all that's there. Don't send me to the heathens. 
It's the same thing. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unclean or unholy. Again, a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. This happened three times. Okay, so Peter was one of those guys, right? One of those kids that you just beat your head against the wall to get things done and just, oh, the tenth time. Huh, wow. Peter's doing the same thing. For, for Peter, it only took three times, though. And immediately, the object was taken up into the sky. Now, can you imagine what Peter's thinking? What is that all about? Now, while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius having asked directions to Simon's house, appeared at the gate. And calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. So, so, so Peter is one of those hard-headed ones, guys. Because here's Gentiles out there waiting for Peter, calling for Peter. And what is this? what does that unclean thing have to do? Oh, some of you would like, oh yeah, I get it. Peter's like, oh, no. He had to have somebody help him. <clears throat> go, uh, uh, three men are looking for you, but get up, go downstairs, and accompany... I mean, he's specific. <laughs> he's so specific with Peter. Down downstairs and accompany them without misgivings. Don't say you're not going to talk to the unholies. No misgivings whatsoever. For I have sent them myself. Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for, you have, for which you have come? Then said Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. So he invited them in and gave them long lodgings. And at the next day, he got up and went away with them, and some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. On the following day, he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter said, rise up, saying, stand up, I too am just a man." He's not a just man. He is just a man. Do you notice that? Jonah thinks of himself as a just man. Peter was thinking of himself as a just man. Now he's got, hey, I'm just a man like anybody else. Do you see the humility that has come over Peter? I truly believe that that humility eventually came over Jonah. But that's an opinion and not in the text. As he walked with him, he entered and many people assembled. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. He just says exactly what you, hey, I can't do that. It's, it's against the law. And I don't want to because I want to keep my justness. And Peter immediately talks to him about this. It's not, it is 
you know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet, God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. Jonah did not get that memo. Peter did. That is why I came without even raising any objection when I was sent for. So I ask for what reason you have sent me. Cornelius says four days ago, to this hour, I was praying in my house during the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in shining garment, and he... <clears throat> okay, we'll start in verse 32 in just a second. I need some help with my electronics, folks. I've been reading scriptures out of when I copy and paste, and it puts the footnote letters before the same size as all the letters. Do you know how hard that is to read? If you can give me some time or I can give you, please help me. I don't know how to get rid of that. And so I've been having a hard time reading, jumping over the letters that are with all the other letters. They make new words. <laughs> Literally. <clears throat> Therefore, send to Joppa and invite Simon, who is also called Peter, to come to you. He is staying at the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. Now then, we are all here present before God to hear all that you have commanded by the Lord. Gentiles, hear the good news. Amen. Verse 34. Now here's the deal. We don't know that Jonah was given all the information Peter was given. We, we cannot say that he was given a sheet. But from a pastoral perspective, a preacher's perspective, I would say this. Jonah missed the boat because God had worked in their hearts to open their hearts and he could have preached and preached and preached and preached. But his self-righteousness got involved and deterred those opportunities. So I sent you immediately, and you have found you are kind enough to come. Verse 34. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I almost certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. Whew. You see, Jonah, Peter was previously Jonah. Not literally, but in mind. He was partial. He did play favoritism. And Jews were everything. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the things that took place throughout all Judea, starting in Galilee, after the baptism with John proclaimed. Now, Jonah didn't have any of this, because now he's giving them the gospel. And the gospel here that he's giving them is, you need to know Jesus. Jonah did not have that. He didn't have any of that information, because it hadn't had happened yet, right? Throughout all Judea, starting with Galilee, after the baptism which John proclaimed, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, 
how God anointed him with this Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. We are witnesses of all things he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him in the death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he became visible. Not all the people, but to the witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. That is to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets, now he's going to give this spiel about who God is, of him Christ is. And all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the... <coughs> All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, also, for they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water of these to be baptized with who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. Now, I might have missed it, but the text also says in one of, those, one, of those, the, one of the sentences in that text, God shows no favoritism. He doesn't show favoritism. He's a God of all. Interesting. <clears throat> Jonah 4 concludes in a manner similar to Jonah 1. At the end of Jonah 1, the Gentile mariners invoke the name of God in gratitude for His mercy toward them. At the end of Jonah 4, the name of God occurs with reference to God's mercy towards Nineveh. Both of those had an unwilling Israelite to tell them who God was. And in the end of Jonah 4, Jonah uses the name of God. And it's very interesting, the words that he used, there's two different words for God. <clears throat> and he uses the Gentilic word in the end. I blew it. That, to me, gives me pause and hope that Jonah figured it out. That God's teaching worked. And that Jonah <clears throat> repented. Do I know that? No, I have no idea. But all the way through the book, every time God is used in, in line with Israel, He uses a certain term for God. But when it's with the Gentiles, it's a different term for God. And now he's going to be using the different term. I think he woke up. Question is, do we need to wake up? 
self-righteousness has no part of a true believer. And if it does, we're a church full of Jonahs. Humility. I am who I am because I'm a sinner saved by grace. It all goes back to God. Not to me. Not to my opinion. It goes to God. Jonah was taught hard lessons. Those hard lessons were brought because of his arrogant pride. His self-righteous thinking. Peter, it took God three times till he got it. Jonah. How many Jonahs are sitting right here right now? How many of us have said and will say, why? Why did you do that to me? I don't deserve that. It's because we have a little taste of Jonah in all of us. In reality. Mr. Gaiman, can you close in a word of prayer, please? Please stand and I will dismiss us in prayer this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this account of Jonah. And Lord, you have shown us this morning that it's not solely an account of a man and a fish, but it reveals the heart of Jonah. It reveals our hearts. Are we just people or do we think we are people who are just before you. Help us realize that we only take our next breath because of your mercy and grace and help us uh, live the Christian life with that in mind for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.